and turn once again to the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Here now, the inspired word of God. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, we would simply ask that you'd be pleased to bless the preaching. That, Father, that the purpose of your word would be manifest to all of us, and that, Father, that it would be the conversion of sinners, the edification of the saints, the building up of your church, that you would receive glory and that the name of our Savior would be exalted. Amen. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The house that Ginger and I live in, we, we purchased it back in 2001. And it had been one of those houses back in those days that had gone through a foreclosure and it had been bought by a group of real estate investors. And they renovated the house, but if you know anything about that type of a transaction, it was mostly just cosmetic. A few years later, we decided to put in a, an addition on the house. And when we did, we found that much of the, many of the repairs that had been made before we bought the house were not, well, let me put it this way, they were not the most professional of carpenters that worked on the house. In fact, we were somewhat appalled at just how shoddy some of the work was. As we opened up some walls, we found headers that had no jack studs under it. They were just kind of like hanging there. So uh, we decided that we had to correct many of those errors while we were opening up some of the walls anyway. You know, there are many home repair companies out there that are not that reputable. And they employ workers who are not the most qualified. In fact, some of them probably are not qualified to build a dollhouse, <laughs> let alone work on your home. In many cases, these workers create more problems than they fix. And I think it's a fair assessment to say that with somebody's like that, they're just not particularly gifted in that area. Some people are very gifted. You, from young age, they pick up a hammer and a saw and, and they're off and running. Well-meaning people who lack knowledge and expertise can create greater problems. You, when fixing a problem, you have to know what not to do as well as what to do. 
Even teachers, teachers know this very well. Uh, when you're teaching, you have to teach both the negative and positive sides of any concept. For example, it's not enough to teach your child that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You have to make sure that they understand that it, 2 plus 2 can equal 5 and can equal, six, can equal 3 at the same time. If you've not done your job and your child believes that 2 plus 2 can equal 4 plus, it can also equal 5, you've not done your job. By definition, error is not truth. If you have a persistent headache, you want the doctor to look further rather than just give you an aspirin. You want to know what causes the headache. Why does my head hurt? We see the same concept come into the spiritual realm of the the life of the Christian. Christians today, especially today with all the uncertainty and the things that are going on in this nation, uh, Christians are seeking answers to life's problems. How can I live a more obedient life for Christ? And, and we all acknowledge that we struggle with sin. We recognize that we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. The, the demands of Scripture are simply too great. Unfortunately, the solution given in many churches is, well, you, well, you know what you need? You need a second work of grace in your life. Just come forward and we'll pray and you, you get this second work of grace. Sometimes they call it a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and there's a number of different things that these people call this. And they say that, that you know when you have this because you'll have some supernatural occurrence given to you so that you know that you have this, this power. And they tell you that this will solve the problem of being weak in the flesh. And then you'll have the ability to live the victorious Christian life. And there's all kinds of theories on how this happens. There's six steps to freedom, seven steps to freedom, and all kinds of other things. Is this true? For a large section of the Christian population believes this. If it's not true then it's a false remedy. If it's not true, then it's masking and preventing what people really need. Two weeks ago, we examined signs and wonders given by God. And that caused us to look at some of the poor teaching in the church in that respect. And we're actually continuing on that topic because we're still in verse 4. Uh, notice what it says, God bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders. And remember, when we looked at that, we saw exactly what that meant. But it continues, and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So it's important. We see that the book of Hebrews is an extremely important part of the canon of Scripture because it really explains the work, the person and the work of Christ, and it really explains the passing of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant coming into existence. And we saw that right even in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, now notice again, what is that setting up for us? That things work differently in the Old Covenant than they will in the New. In the New it says, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. 
And so we saw that the two revelations were contrasted. The former revelation, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers. But in these last days, the revelation, the complete revelation, is in Jesus Christ. And this is a crucial point for the rest of our study in Hebrews. We are actually still in the middle of the first part of the book of Hebrews, where the author is telling us how Christ is superior to the angels. And that's what leads us into this study on spiritual gifts, because he has so far, Jesus is so far superior to the angels that we must pay closer attention and heed the word which was given through him. That's what we've read in our text. We saw in chapter 2, 3 that there's a great danger of neglecting the salvation that we have. And this word was attested by signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we looked at signs and wonders a few weeks ago, and we saw that they were given to authenticate the apostles and their words. It proved that they did, in fact, speak for God. And some of these signs and wonders are not meant to be duplicated today because they were specifically for a purpose that could only take place during that era. One of the purposes of the book of Hebrews is that it shows the change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And that is evident even in these first two chapters. This change in covenants was a unique event in Scripture that occurred during the first century. And and Hebrews addresses this change of the covenants. And that leads us to another foundational principle if we are to understand the gifts of the Spirit. And that is that this period from the time of Christ was a period to the destruction of the temple was a period of transition. Remember, we can view all of history in three stages. Jonathan Edwards put this forth first, I believe. He said, you can look at everything from creation up to Christ as the anticipation of redemption. During the time of Christ, the accomplishment of redemption. And then every time, everything from the crucifixion on, the application of redemption. During the life of Christ, we saw the transition from anticipation to accomplishment. From Christ's accomplishment of redemption through the book of Acts and the epistles, we see the transition from redemption to uh, accomplished to its application. So in one sense, we could say that from the birth of Christ to the destruction of the temple is a period of transition in God's plan of redemption. The Old Testament types and shadows were fulfilled in Christ, and then we see how Christ's work is applied to the church. Christ brought a new covenant, a superior covenant, with a superior mediator. Now this is a main theme in Hebrews. But the old covenant didn't end on one day in the new beginning on the next. It wasn't that simple. There was a time of transition. All of the instructions for the new covenant had to be given and written down. Jesus commissioned the apostles for that task. Many of the things that happened during that time were not normative for the church in all ages. It was a unique time of signs and wonders, miracles, and special gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was a time when certain men, the apostles, had the right to speak to God, speak for God, 
and write Holy Scripture and do it so infallibly. But it is, that is not the model for the rest of the church history. Even the structure of the book of Acts shows this. The book of Acts is not a random sample of church life. There's a structure, there's a, an order to the book of Acts. Uh, let, me, let me read uh, Luke's opening to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. He says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, notice convincing proofs, uh, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice Luke talks about how he took careful account of what was taking place during this period of time. And then in verse 8, of chapter 1, he gives the structure of the book. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That verse is a, somewhat of an outline, a general outline of the book of Acts. Acts shows the methodical spread of the gospel and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The gospel must be preached in Jerusalem and Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. And we see that there's a correlation with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even though the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event, it occurs at, in stages that follow the outline of the book of Acts. And this is further proof that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a repeatable event, but was a one-time event in the history of redemption, just like the death of Christ, the resurrection, his session at the right hand of God, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was poured out first in Jerusalem at Pentecost. That's what we read in Acts 2. Then we see the outpouring of the Spirit in Samaria. Remember that Philip had gone to Samaria because of the persecution of Saul and the death of Stephen. And the Samaritans began believing in Christ. Acts chapter 8. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Notice that this was given under apostolic authority. And then we see the Holy Spirit given to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. Notice the Jewish believers were amazed at this occurrence. And Peter says, now... How can we withhold water baptism from them? Because they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And then we see the Spirit given to the remotest parts of the earth. One example in Acts 19. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. These events were symbolic of the Spirit being given to the whole church wherever she meets. The book of Acts is not given to instruct us about how the baptism of the Holy Spirit should be given. There is no norm. Sometimes in in that period of transition, the baptism of the Holy Spirit preceded water baptism. Sometimes it followed it. And these events were not meant to teach us how to pray for the Holy Spirit. That's not their purpose. They were given to show us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to all believers, no matter who they are, Jew or Gentile, and no matter where they are. And also you'll notice there is no command in Scripture to baptize in the Holy Spirit anywhere because the baptism in the Holy Spirit is applied at conversion to every believer in this age without exception. Once the Pentecostal pouring out was completed in the stages we've seen, there is no more mention in Acts nor any of the epistles about it again. And that tells us something. Throughout the epistles, it is presumed and implied that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The commands in the epistles are that we should be filled with the Spirit. And that comes as we put off the old man and put on the new, as Paul relates in Ephesians 4 and 5. Now, this transition period was also necessary since the Bible wasn't complete yet. There was a a period of 400 years when there was no new revelation given to Israel up until the time of Christ. And now with the coming of Christ and the new covenant coming to the whole world, new revelation is now being given again. And that revelation was accompanied by signs and wonders, various gifts of the Holy Spirit to authenticate that the apostles spoke the truth and were men from God. And that's what we see in our text. Look at verse 4 one more time. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's still talking about God witnessing uh, who they were. So what are these Gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, the first thing we must do is differentiate between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent forth his Holy Spirit as a gift to the entire church. He baptized his church with the Holy Spirit, and every believer is a partaker in that baptism and is a partaker in the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as being a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the individual believers. Look again at our text, verse 4. 
of Hebrews 2. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. We also read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this, again, is a very important text. Starting in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. The varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the, the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now I want to say something concerning gifts of the Spirit. We are taught today that these gifts are listed for us in certain areas like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And there are actually seminars given to how to determine what your spiritual gift is. And I don't know, I've kind of distanced myself from that a little bit. Some people are more gifted in some areas than others. Some have gifting in numerous areas. But they are gifts of the grace of God. As each one has, 1 Peter 4 says, as each one has received a special gift, employing it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has poured out his grace upon men and given various gifts of the Spirit for his own glory. And I've moved away from this idea of trying to identify your particular spiritual gift. One, I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think it's necessarily beneficial either. But if you know it, that's, that's fine. I believe we tend to focus on gifts in an unbiblical way instead of focusing on their purpose. And I don't mean the so-called charismatic gifts, which, by the way, is a big misnomer. Again, we find ourselves in a situation where the predominant teaching on this subject is Pentecostal or charismatic, which brings me to my next point. Every gift of the Holy Spirit to the church is charismatic. The Greek word for gift is charisma. And that doesn't just refer to the supernatural gifts. The reference of only certain gifts as being charismatic is not biblical teaching. Let me give you some examples. In Romans 6, 23, this is a familiar to all of us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift is the word charisma. Romans 5, verses 14 to 16. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift, charisma, 
is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression one of the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift, charisma, by the grace of one man, Jesus, and it goes on through that whole thing. Every time you see the word gift, it's charisma. And then in 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the spiritual gift, charisma, within you, which was bestowed upon you by prophetic utterance by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And now here is an, un, an interesting use of the word charisma in 1 Corinthians 7. Yet I wish all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift, charisma, from God, one in this manner, another in that. If you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, Paul is talking about his singleness as being a gift, charisma. It's a charismatic gift. And then he goes on and talks about it is a gift to be married, but it is a gift also to be single. So we have to be careful how we use these words. In Romans 12, we see the two words in the same context. And since we have gifts, charisma, that differ according to the grace, charis. Notice the relationship. So all of God's children have the, the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives individuals different gifts. But all of those, quote, charismatic gifts are given for the same purpose. Again, we must pause and define what we mean because of the predominant view in the church today tends to lead to error. What are the purposes of these gifts? Are they a recognition of a second blessing? Are they necessary to, to be sanctified? Are they necessary for the emotional well-being of Christians? The Bible answers the most important question. What is the purpose of these gifts? 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Whether your gift is a service-related gift or a ministry-related gift or a gift involving speaking or preaching, they are all given to build up and edify the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Any use of gifts other than what the scripture says is to misinterpret what the purpose of the gifts are. The goal is unity in the church. The goal is to build up the church to maturity so that the church would have all the fullness of Christ. These gifts are not reserved for a second work of grace. They are given to everyone whom Christ calls to himself. So then what about these miraculous gifts? What about the Pentecostal experience? Isn't that necessary for every Christian? That's what we're told. Well, here I hope you see why we've taken some a few weeks to lay a foundation. Remember the purpose for signs and wonders. They attest to the authenticity of the apostles. Remember that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a one-time experience in the accomplishment of redemption. Remember that the transition nature of this period from the time of Christ to the end of the apostolic age. And if you remember those things, it becomes clear that some gifts and manifestations were given for that time only 
Not that Gad can't, Gad can't do anything, whatever time period he wants, but he gives gifts not only to certain individuals, but for certain time periods in his church. Some gifts were temporary in nature. In fact, the reason that they ceased is not because God can't do them or doesn't want to do them, but because they're not necessary. They were given to bring the word of God into fullness, to bring the church to maturity. We read in Paul's letter to Corinth, of how when the perfect comes, talking about the, the new covenant church coming in maturity, maturing to, uh, with all the gifts that it needs. And that includes one of the things is the canon of scripture. Remember, the canon of scripture was incomplete at the time Paul was writing. And these gifts were signs of the apostolic authority of the men who had commissioned to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. And then once that was accomplished, then these sign gifts, apostolic gifts, were no longer necessary. When the days of the apostles were over, the signs were not needed anymore. And we talked about, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about street signs leading us to a destination, and then once they're there, we don't need those signs anymore. That's exactly what we read in this portion of God's Word that deals with gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And then Paul gives this illustration. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. So remember, the purpose of the gifts is to bring the church to maturity. The gifts of knowledge, tongues, prophecy were given at a time, they were like shadows still looking into a, a mirror dimly. But when the scriptures were completed, we now have the full revelation of God. We're no longer in the dark. The scriptures have, in the scriptures, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And they make the man of God perfect and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some teach that the perfect coming is the second coming of Christ, but I'm not going to get into all the details, but it just can't be both contextually or grammatically or linguistically. The word for perfect, teleos, there is in the neuter gender. Can't be talking about Christ. Notice Paul's wording regarding maturity and childishness. The supernatural manifestations of the Spirit were temporary and ceased when the full word of God was complete. And that period of transition ended when God destroyed the temple in 70 AD. No longer could the Jews even practice old covenant worship. It's impossible without the temple. And I believe the proof is overwhelming that when the canon of Scripture was completed, it was before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The Old Testament shadows were gone. The temporary revelations of the transition period were over. 
The full revelation of Jesus Christ was complete. The childish things were put away. And in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, who is superior to the angels in every respect. And even the word spoken through them and ordained by them was completed in the new covenant in his blood. So what is this place of spiritual gifts today? Should we seek them? Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you still a more excellent way. Even in the days when supernatural gifts were useful, Paul says still desire the greater gifts. And the greatest charismatic gift is the gift of love. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, if I do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul says this is the more excellent way. Desire this gift, the greater gift. How then does the Spirit manifest himself in the life of the believer? Ezekiel prophesied. He said in Ezekiel 36, 27, speaking of the new covenant, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall be careful to observe my ordinances. The sign that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and received his gifts is the life that has changed from rebellion to him to obedience to him. That's a very brief overview of a very complex theological discussion. But there's some practical implications here. You know, when, when we were doing that renovation on our apartment, it led to much more work to correct because of the shoddy workmanship that had been done. I wish these men had been gifted carpenters. <laughs> then I wouldn't have had all that extra work. The teacher who only tries to teach things positively and not the negative aspects of it is not going to accomplish their goal. Not only do you have to teach what the concept is, but what it's not. False remedies in medicine can do greater damage as they mask the true problem. Pop an aspirin for a headache, if you don't know what's causing the headache, can be masking something very serious. The false view of the gifts of the Spirit, even though the people are sincere, can lead people into error and away from what they really need. The gifts of the Holy Spirit were given to edify the church. <clears throat> the miraculous temporary gifts were signs of the apostolic age and attested to the prophetic word being spoken. They filled a void that needed to be filled. But they are not what the church needs today. The perfect word of God is here, and it teaches us a more excellent way. The Christian does not need a second work of grace. He needs to constantly be filled with the Spirit day in and day out. He needs to study the Word of God and begin to walk in obedience to it. 
He needs to put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the new man. The victorious Christian life is not gained by an emotional experience that will eventually wear off. The victorious Christian life is a daily walk of discipline. It is denying yourself daily, taking up your cross, and following Christ. The Christian life is the way of love. But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, once again we bow before you and we acknowledge, Father, that, that we, need, we need you. We need, we need your gifting. We need your strength. We need the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to, to even attempt to live a godly life. But, Father, you tell us that we are not to desire these gifts, but except for the more excellent ones. You tell us that we are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other as ourselves. We ask that you would help us to do that. Through the indwelling of your spirit, Father, we pray that you would constantly fill us with your spirit as we are leaky vessels. And then, Father, I would pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would take away their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, that they might repent and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.